your mind is like a garden and what you're, is going on in your consciousness is just the, the, over the soil, right? You're seeing the flowers and the weeds grow, but that doesn't really tell you what's happening underneath the surface. You got to get down there with, you know, get your hands dirty and pull those weeds up by the root. Hi, I'm Deanna Robbins. And I'm Christy North. Welcome to Pieces of a Woman podcast, where we explore all the pieces that make up a woman, mind, body, and soul. By embracing all complexities of being a woman, our goal is to share real stories that inspire growth and empower all women to be the best versions of themselves. And as Maya Angelou so eloquently said, when we know better, we do better. Thank you for taking this journey with us. So today we are sitting here with Jay Schiffman. He's the founder of Choose Your Struggle. His goal is to end the stigma and promote honest and fact-based education around the topics of mental health. He is a survivor of two suicide attempts and an overdose, and he's now considered to be in long-term recovery. It's Jay's mission to encourage difficult conversations, honest education, he holds a BA in psychology from Northern Kentucky University and with over a decade of lived and professional experience in the field, Jay has put numerous hours of independent learning, acquiring certifications in mental health, substance misuse, and addiction. He lives in Philadelphia with his wife, Lauren, and their dog, Nell. Oh, welcome, Jay. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. So we're honored to have you. Today's episode is about how we can support the men in our lives, our husbands, our brothers, friends, coworkers. You know, we hear the term mental health and we really talk about it, in, I think, in such a general term. Um, and it really, there's so many areas that I think fall into mental health. Uh, I thought today we might focus on some of the more common. And then, of course, talk about how we, you know, what are some steps we can take to be supporting the men in our lives? So share with us a little bit about yourself and let's start talking about that. Well, I, I appreciate there's two things that, that that you really just focused on that we'll distill into one real quick, which is that. Uh, you know, in my bio, I say that I like to help have or, or help people have uncomfortable conversations. And and you're right. What you just said, we do talk about mental health a lot. But then when you actually get to the specifics, people are like, oh, no, 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 I, I don't want to do that. Or no, that that feels uncomfortable. I don't want to do that. And in reality, we as a culture are so afraid of being uncomfortable. Um, perfect example. Uh, I just got back from a trip and I sit down on the plane and I'm reading a book uh, and, and the person next to me is reading a book and they I, I don't want to get us into the weeds here, but they almost literally were the exact trying to make the exact opposite point. And they looked at me and I looked at them and they very conspicuously slowly put a, their headphones in while looking at me. And it was hilarious. It was so funny to me because rather than have a conversation about, wow, this is kind of funny. You know, our books are making opposite points. They were just like, nope. <laughs> Um, and, and that is kind of our culture to a T, right? Is that we would rather just say, okay, I'm going to go over here. And, and sometimes that's fine. But other times when it's literally people's lives at stake, uh, we need to be uncomfortable to just flat out, flat out that. Okay. So with that, you say we need to be uncomfortable. Share us some examples of what, how we can change that. For example, with on the plane. What could we do differently in that situation? I mean, it's a stranger, so maybe we're not going to necessarily approach it. But when, when we're sitting with someone that is a family member or a friend, you know, what, what are some ways that we can be more vulnerable and bring that to the table? 
Yeah, so I, I like that second half better. The, the plane one, I think, is a funny example. But but when it really matters, like when we're sitting with people in our lives that we care about, uh, the, the rule of, of thumb that I always try to help people understand with is that, you know, never in the history of ever has forcing somebody to, to open up to you ever worked. That's just if you're a parent, you know that, right? As, as we were all teens at one time when our mother, or our father got in our face was like, tell me the truth. The last thing you wanted to do was tell them the truth. So the way that, that, that we are trained to have these conversations instead is, you know, with that person in your life that you really love. Uh, it, obviously you do if you want to be sitting there having this conversation with them is to mirror them what you're hoping to get. So the example I can give is that, you know, nobody is ever not struggling with something and sit down and say, hey, you know, I know that you're somebody who, who uh, you know, gives me good advice or or uh, is willing to be a, a, a empathetic ear. Do you mind if I kind of talk through something I'm going on, you know, struggling with? Right. And you do that and, and you just get nothing in return. I mean, nothing, they aren't asking for anything from them in return. And you create this sort of two-way street where that person goes, okay, they trust me enough to, to, to ask my opinion. They trust me enough to, 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 to be that empathetic person. I can be that, or, or I can, I can look for that in them. Uh, obviously that's starting way upstream. You know, if you're in a crisis moment, that's not exactly going to work. But if there's somebody in your life you think is struggling with their mental health, that is the best way to start is by saying, coming to them and just saying, hey, would you mind helping me with something and creating that opportunity for them to say, you know, I'm also working on something right now. Would you say that from a male perspective, that that is still an appropriate approach? Um, I, I think in general, it probably is. But from the men in our lives, I've witnessed that emotions are held pretty close and they're not expressed like most women we kind of wear on our sleeves and our you know i'll give an example my husband it used to be early on after losing our son him being able to share his emotions was almost impossible and if we start to have uncomfortable conversations about what we were feeling he had to literally leave the room and it's only been in maybe the last year that he has been able to be more present with those emotions. And so I feel like it's almost this learned tool skill that we have to continue to like build this muscle, like, like you do a muscle. What, what are your thoughts on that, Jay? Well, you're hundred percent right. I mean, we are, we are taught and I'm, I'm, you know, millennial, I'm only 35, but we were all taught, you know, this, this stupid, outdated, harmful belief of be a man, you know, all this awful stuff, right? And and my dad is very loving. He's one, he's one of my heroes. He's one of my best friends. But even he used to say that, right? Because that's just what he was taught. So we we are unlearning uh, that that harmful learned belief. But it, this, this does work. And I can give you a, an example from my own life. So a couple of years ago, I was reading this magazine article in Psychology Today, where they were highlighting how it was 95 or so percent of all male friendships revolve around three topics. I've done this multiple times. No one's ever guessed all three. Do you want to take a shot at it? Sex, food. Uh, so sex or women is oh, number yeah. one. Sports. Uh, sports. Sports is number two. Uh, three, I would think career. Nope. Exercise. Golf. Nope. No, and I don't play golf. I'm very happy. <laughs> family? Would it be family and dating? It's media. So music, oh. movies, TV, whatever, right? Uh, and this article gave this example because they they were interviewing people and they were telling these crazy stories, like a guy who had been divorced for a decade and none of his friends knew because nobody ever asked. 
or another guy who was homeless. And again, his friends just never asked him where he lived. And so he didn't tell anybody. So I read that and it, it almost literally knocked me out of my chair that I was sitting in. And it, cause it, cause it hit too close to home. You know, I had just gotten married and I realized that of my non blood relatives who were my groomsmen, that was the relationship I had with too many of those guys. So I reached out to all of them, including my brothers that day. And I said, look, I just read this. It scared me because it was too real. We're going to change this. You know, yes, we are still going to talk about these topics we love because, you know, my buddies and I love to talk about, you know, sports, especially and and all that kind of stuff. But we're also going to have deeper conversations. And a friend of mine, one of the guys who I knew probably the least of, of my groomsmen, we had bonded over a shared obsession with the world of Star Wars. And that's kind of what we talked about at nine, about 90% of the time in sports, because he was also a big sports guy. I told him that, and he was a guy who was raised in a very buttoned up household. Well, here, fast forward to three years later, uh, he just had his first kid. Congratulations to him. And two weeks before he had the kid, we had a long talk about how scared he was and about how he was looking forward to it, of course, but also was absolutely terrified of what if he wasn't going to be a good dad and all this kind of stuff. Three years ago, we don't have that discussion because he doesn't think that he can trust me that way. And and working this relationship to the point where now he's one of my closest friends and he felt comfortable sharing those emotions with me, it meant a lot. And I know it meant a lot to him because clearly he felt that he had somebody he could share these, these thoughts with. So it does take work. I'm not going to sit here and say, yeah, you have this conversation. The next day they're going to turn around. Like it takes a lot of work. But the caution I would say to people who are like, oh, what if I scare them off? I mean, if, if you have someone in your life that you love and you want to have that emotional connection with, and they're not willing to do the work. I mean, quite frankly, that's not a relationship that would have lasted the bonds of time anyways. So my caution to you is do the work, put the time in and, and tell the person that you care about them and you want to have that closer and in reality, more more uh, solid relationship. You know, Jay, you said something in there that you really touched on the fear of if I open up, is somebody, is it going to be too much for somebody to really handle? And I think that is a common, it seems to be a common thing for a lot of men. And I love the fact of men showing up for other men, because sometimes opening up to a female, I would say there's kind of a pre misconception, maybe, well, they're, they're emotional, they're, so it doesn't feel the same as when you can open up to a guy and have a real conversation. I mean, I would think it seems more supportive and I don't know if that's right or not, but it seems like it's another guy who can relate to what I'm going through. Yeah. I, I, so you're, you're absolutely right. Uh, I have, I, I could tell you, you know, pick up my phone right now and there are 10 women that would be here in instant to listen if I had a struggle, obviously led by my amazing wife. Uh, and the list of guys is shorter. I mean, that is a harder relationship to build. But if you are able to, you know, one of my best friends in the world, we've, he's been one of my best friends since we were in middle school. And, you know, we had an issue, just would have been about six months ago, that I laid it out how I was feeling. And it caught him off guard because, you know, again, what you're saying, guys don't really do that. We kind of just bottle it up and keep moving. And 10 years later, we're still mad that that thing happened, right? And so I let him know. <laughs> and we actually talked about it. We talked about it over wings at a while watching a football game. And now we are better off because of it. I mean, it definitely, again, to my earlier point, it takes the work. But to your point, once you get there, it really creates. I mean, this was a guy who literally was a brother to me 
and was still kind of shocked that I would I would express a way I was feeling, even after being close friends for over 20 years. It's just the way we're taught. But if you can put that work in, it creates a relationship that is so much more fulfilling would be the word I would choose. Okay. So, you know, I'm mostly reflected on my experience with the close men in my life, my two boys and my husband. And I'm, you know, I think about the different ways that I've witnessed how they power through their emotions. And I heard a term from Brene Brown on a podcast recently where they talked about digging deep, leaning in. That's not allowing for the emotions. And so as I'm thinking about the way my husband copes with stress or when he feels vulnerable or he's feeling any type of emotions that are what we label as depression, but not necessarily depression, they're just emotions. His way of coping is, you know, he's going to go skiing. He's going to go on a hike. He's going to go and do something active where I'm probably going to sit on the couch, curl up and cry or eat a bowl of ice cream while I watch Netflix. So, you know, and, and my, my sons were not that they were raised to be strong and not have emotion. Cause I feel like there was somewhat of a balance there, but they tend to like hold everything in and not share. And I thought we were creating an environment where you could do that. And so I guess I'm, I'm saying what I'm asking is, as you know, me supporting these men, I felt like I had to really learn to kind of witness what worked for them and how they expressed and then finding that opportunity to speak about it. And that was challenging, getting them to actually speak about it and finding the right time. Well, I will say my, my caveat here is that, Christy, your your way of, of dealing with this sounds exactly what I would do as well. I was brought up in a family where my mother was more the stoic one and my dad was more the emotional one. And so I sort of had the flip of these gender norms showed to me. And so that is my go to. My wife knows that I don't keep things bottled up well. I just don't. I share my feelings readily. And it, I think it's actually made our marriage stronger because she doesn't worry about me bottling up some you know, thing that I'm angry. I, I'll tell her. But I will say that there is an exercise I was taught a long time ago that, by a therapist that I absolutely love that I recommend to everybody. Uh, and it's called the daily check-in. And it's great for men and women because it's very private. And if you can get over the fear, which is the, the, the number one emotion that this can invoke, it can be a really helpful emotion or a really helpful uh, exercise. And this is very simple. So I can tell it to you very quickly here. Uh, it is a, it is an exercise of mindfulness where you pull out your phone or a notepad or, or whatever it is that you're, you want to use to write on. And you write the words, I feel, and then you finish the sentence. And you do this over and over again until you feel empty. And when you first start, when you're, you're holding back a little bit, this is going to be very surface level. I feel angry that this happened. I feel hungry, whatever the case is. But the more you work on it, the more you start breaking this barrier between your conscious and your subconscious uh, emotions in your mind here. And what starts coming up are the things that, as this, this therapist shared with me, he was like, man, I wish these were the things that, that my, my clients would bring in every day. You know, not that these sort of BS service level fights with their sister or whatever aren't important. Like, yes, let's work on that. But those deep seated things that you don't even know are there until you start doing this work. That's the kind of life changing stuff that a good therapist is going to help you move past. And the analogy that, that he used that I 
still love to use to this day, is that your mind is like a garden. And what is going on in your consciousness is just the, the, over the soil, right? You're seeing the flowers and the weeds grow. But that doesn't really tell you what's happening underneath the surface. You got to get down there, with, you know, get your hands dirty and pull those weeds up by the root. And this exercise helps you realize what's down there underneath the surface. And that's then the, the first step to working on it. So I definitely understand the reluctance for people to do this because sometimes what comes up will terrify you. I know I've been there, but carrying it around does nothing for you. You just have to get down there, get your hands dirty and then start working on it. Oh, I love that you said that. And I have to say, I'm I'm fortunate in that my husband is, he's the opposite. He loves, he talks about everything, which I appreciate because good communication is key, right? And so it, he's not afraid to talk about emotions. He's that guy friend that he can ask other guys, like, how you doing, man? Which I love. But also my son, who was diagnosed with ADHD, and I know you talk about this. I'm grateful that he talks about his emotions and he definitely shows his emotions, but he's also that friend to other people, but he carries still a lot within himself. And trying to hold space for him that it's okay. And he's now married and his wife is more the stoic one, more the, so what you're saying is, so how do we, if people, if men are scared to open up, if men are, and I mean, I'm kind of going all over the place, but I do want to dive into the ADHD a little bit and the medications that how as a mom, as a partner, if you are with someone who it's just hard to get them to open up. And I think sometimes we can be really critical and judgmental. And so I know there's a piece of that where we need to step back and go, okay, if I'm going to hold space for this person and allow them to open up, I need to not get reactive. And how can I be supportive? What is the best advice there to even start that? Because sometimes we just have knee-jerk reactions. Yeah. And that's very human, obviously. The thing I think that is really important to, to remember is that you can't be that for everybody, right? I know my mother, I love her very much. I respect her. We don't have that relationship because she is the more stoic one that I quite frankly don't open up to my mother the way that I do to my dad because he is more the emotional one and understands more what's going on in, in, inside of me. So in that case, is it possible that my mother and I could develop that relationship this late in life? Of course it's possible. Um, but she would have to, at, at the very beginning, set aside this, this idea that she doesn't know best, right? I mean, she literally does not feel what I am feeling. And so in that case, she would have to start there and say, I know that I don't understand. And that's really hard for a lot of us to say, especially if like my mother, you are more of the stoic, unemotional person in this give and take here. So uh, that would be the, the place to start is by saying, I recognize that I do not know. Uh, and that's, you know, when we're taught to try to understand other people, right? That's literally step one for a lot of these things is to say, I don't know what you're going through. And I recognize that. Please help me understand. Because, you know, as someone who's lived through, let's say, my experience of addiction, when people come in and go, oh, I get it, you know, because I've read the news or I've heard whatever, that is an immediate shutdown. Like, you do not understand. And also, quite frankly, the way that people like me, my story has been reported is flat out wrong. And there's a lot of baggage there. So, for, so when people sit down and say, man, I would love to understand more. And I, first step is I know I don't know that makes me want to open up and go oh wow like thank you for that 
uh, sure, I would love to help you understand a little bit better. You know what? I really appreciate that because you're you're so spot on. And I think when our kids are younger, we try to control so much. Christy and I have been talking about control. Um, but now that he's older, it's so much easier for me to step back and actually say, you know what? I really don't understand what you're going through, but I still want to be the person that's here for you to support you. And I may not understand it. And I think a lot of times you know, if you can't be that place for somebody, that person for somebody, it's okay for somebody else. So I appreciate you saying that it's okay for somebody else to fill that spot. Well, and if we are, you know, that person for someone that is, you know, you gave the example as your mother, but I'm sure there's so many of us out there that we may not make it easy for the men to come to us. For sure. So having some self-awareness around how you handle Tough situations or tough conversations is important to ask yourself. I can, you know, give an example looking back at just all of my children collectively, but mostly my son, who we talked about that I lost to suicide. And, you know, I I didn't understand what his emotions were, how much they were building and how much he was not sharing. He was giving surface level communication. What was really happening is when he was sharing because I was so disconnected from depression and what that looked like, I was trying to fix it. I was trying to rationalize and say, I would make responses like, well, I don't understand. You have all of these friends, you have this beautiful family, you have a car to get to your hockey games. Like why? I, and, and that was my ignorant, naive side at the time. And so I encourage, you know, when I'm talking to people today to be able to listen without the judgment. And while you're holding space, it really, it's an effort to just literally not speak and just be able to absorb what they're sharing. And instead of trying to fix it, ask the questions of how that makes them feel. What are your thoughts on that, Jay? I was, I want to say that I, I identify with that so much because like you, I come from, a. I think this is my mother's side of me is that I am a problem solver who wants to think of things rationally. And as a guy with OCD, when things don't behave in a rational way, my brain feels like it's on fire and I, I need things to be orderly. And so that is the one thing that I, I would say the biggest thing I fall short of in being a good husband to my wife is that sometimes I just want to fix things. And she has to say, I don't want you to fix this. I just want you to listen. And I, I struggle with that like a lot of people. So I definitely underscore that. But to your earlier point, you made an, a, just something that I wish every person, not just mother or father or whatever, would understand is that to tr properly help the people in their life, sometimes they have to remove their personal connection to the situation. I have an extreme story I love to tell because I think it's it's so helpful. I was working with a client, this was over two years ago, and uh, the, the, the family had hired me because the, the guy was 21 or so, and was really struggling with substance misuse and addiction. He had just overdosed and lived, thank God. And that's when they hired me. And that's when a lot of people, I don't do a lot of coaching anymore, but I always say yes to that situation. If you've just survived an overdose, like I'm here as a survivor myself. And they were telling me this whole story and it really wasn't adding up. So I sit down with the, the young guy, and he's telling me this story and it's it's very sad, but it's almost typical. He had been struggling. He got into recovery. He was on buprenorphine, which is the drug that really helps people with opioid uh, addictions get better. And 
one day he was at work and his mom was cleaning his room. Very nice thing for her to do. And she moved his dresser and found a needle. Now, this needle was probably years old at this point. The kid didn't even know it was there. The mother decided this meant that he had relapsed, calls him, demands he come home from work so she can kick him out of the house. Uh, and he leaves. And unfortunately, in those moments of high stress, when you were like this young man was, I mean, he was less than a month into recovery. What are you going to do? You're going to go to the thing that made you feel better. So he goes and buys heroin and he his dealer wasn't around. So he buys from the first person he can find. So he doesn't know the purity of the drug. He doesn't know the dose and he overdoses. And the mom just could not hear her role in this. Right. She she knew the books say you, you know, tough love and, and all that harmful stuff. And so after hearing both of them tell this story, I had to help the mom understand, like, I know you thought you were doing the thing that was best for your son in that moment, but you unintentionally were what drove him to use in this moment. And thank God he lived through his, his overdose. So it, it's really hard in those moments to step back. And again, actually, to use a quote that she said when she hired me, she said, Jay, it's almost like he doesn't care what I want. And I had to say, I'm so sorry to be the one to tell you this. He doesn't. He's struggling with addiction. That overwhelms everything else. I know I've been there. You have to remove your connection to this person as mother to son and just say, how is this human suffering? And how can I play a role in them getting better? And that's not easy. I'm not going to say it is. But in that moment, she could not see anything other than from her own, you know, direct line of, of, of vision there. And it almost was fatal for her son. Wow. We have a hard time separating that. And we think that it's about us. Yep. And that's where I think we can fall short if we can't have some awareness around that and just take a minute and make it about the person that we're talking for sure. Well, and Jay, I wanted to ask you kind of shifting gears just a little bit. So we do have a small percentage, but we have a small percentage of men that listen to our podcast who are fathers, sons, brothers. What is one piece of advice you would give them if, um, well, it's not if, like you said earlier at the beginning of the show, we all have struggles at some point, right? I mean, it's just life. It's hypersensitive right now, but what would you say to any of our male listeners out there who have a hard time communicating and opening up? What's the first step for them outside of, I love your practice of, I feel that's awesome outside of that. Well, first off, hello, fellow men. Uh, <laughs> so let me actually give an example from, from my childhood growing up. Um, you know, as I said, I'm, I'm a very, I wear my heart on my sleeve kind of guy, but I'm the oldest of four boys in a crazy household. You know, there wasn't a lot of one-on-one -on -one time with my parents, but there was one moment where we always knew we could talk to my dad. And that was when we were playing catch in the front yard. Uh, you know, he's a big baseball guy. I am still, I mean, I played baseball, organized ball for about 15 years. Multiple of my brothers did as well. And that was our one-on-one -on -one time was with the two of us in the front yard playing catch. And in, inevitably my dad would always, Hey, you know, what's going on? Let's talk. And as we're adults now, like he, I was just in Florida with him for a couple of days and we went to dinner and we had a great conversation, but we also had a catch and caught up. And, you know, the, the advice I would say is find that activity with this person, whether it's your son, your, your daughter, you, you, your spouse, that you feel comfortable in that moment being more vulnerable. You know, some people 
can feel super awkward sitting there at the dinner table trying to have hard conversations. I, I get it. You know, for me and my wife, that's usually just a nice time to put on some music and have a meal together. So I don't really want to be super open and vulnerable in that moment. Um, but there are other times when whether maybe it's you're taking a walk or maybe it's you're driving. And so, you know, not only are you stuck in this position where you're, there's nothing, you can't go anywhere, but you're also forced to face forward. So you don't have to look at the person. That can be a really helpful moment to have these hard conversations. Maybe it's taking a walk, whatever it is that you do. Maybe you guys, uh, you know, go boating together. I don't know. But figure out that moment where you feel comfortable and then just start opening slowly. And, and the, the moment can be super helpful. And, you know, as I said, I look back fondly on those moments where, uh, yes, could it have been annoying that my dad always wanted to talk about stuff when I was trying to work on, you know, I was a pitcher for a while. So I was trying to work on my latest pitch. But sure. But I also understood that this was our time. This was our time to, to, to talk and, and, and have a more of a connection when, when it was really hard to find those moments. I love that. And I wanted to ask you also, Jay, I kind of touched on it earlier, your work as far as how we're dealing as a society with ADHD and, and all of the, there's a lot going on right now, but what, just what's your, what's your latest response on all of that and how we're dealing with this? Yeah. So a little bit of context for those listening who are like, why does she keep asking about it? Sorry. Uh, <laughs> no, no, it's important. Um, so that's a big part of my story. I was diagnosed in the late nineties as a preteen. And for a little bit of context on that, in the mid 80s, when I was born, there were only roughly, I think it's about 350,000 young people treated for uh, that umbrella of disorders, what we call ADHD, uh, in the United States. And by the time I was diagnosed, it was over 2 million. Uh, we're now at over four and a half million. This has just exploded. The easy thing to say is, well, of course, it's, it's overprescribed, which I agree with. I think that for some people, these are super necessary diagnoses and prescriptions. But for other people, it's just that, you know, trying to make a 10 year old sit through a very antiquated education format where we you're not allowed to talk, you're not allowed to move, you just have to focus is really hard for a lot of people. I would struggle with that today as a 35 year old, I need breaks, I need, you know, I know what my attention is. So uh, I do think it's over over prescribed. But that doesn't mean that that, that uh, attention is not something that we as a society are struggling with. I just checked out Johan Hari's new book, which is all about the, the, the attention. I'm a big Johan Hari fan. If you have not read Chasing the Scream about the, the war on drugs, I think it's incredible. It's, it's a really tough one because unfortunately, I don't have an, a good answer. I know that the story I can tell is a couple of years ago, a good friend of mine who had a, at the time a seven-year-old uh, asked me out to lunch and we sat down. And he said, look, uh, I know your story. Uh, they're trying to put my seven-year-old on Ritalin. And I was like, man, that's that's tough. You know, I, I'm not a dad. I, I don't have kids. I can't imagine putting my young child on, on you know, drugs. That That is pretty amazing. But at the same time, you know, not everybody's able to give their kid the focus that my friend was. And so I said, if I could give you a piece of advice, it would be to actually talk to your child and figure out, you know, is there another school you can go to with more free time? Can you build in more exercise in the day to help him get rid of some of that energy? And he considered all the options and ended up moving from schools. He is not treated for it to this day. He, he has been, wow. he went somewhere where they gave him more attention. He, he got more uh, recess and he's fine. That's not to say that he doesn't have attention issues, but it is to say that he didn't need Ritalin at seven years old. Needed to change his environment. 
I, yes. And I appreciate you sharing that. I think this ties into mental health. I don't know if you've read the book. I have a grandson who is six, who is autistic. And there's a book out there, The Myth of Autism. And it's by Dr. Michael Goldberg, I believe is the author. It's a fascinating book, but he dives into how we don't look at the brain, but he got into everything as far as ADHD. And and we just have a tendency to throw medication at stuff and we're not dealing with the actual problem. So anyway, I find that fascinating, but it is really all about our mental health. Also, Jay, to tie into that, I'm just curious your thoughts real quick on there's a lot of talk now about social media and how we're being controlled and what is happening as far as uh, Google. Uh, it's all the social media apps and how we now are a generation. You're kind of on that cusp. So I have a daughter who's 32 and you know technology wasn't like it is now. So you're actually ahead of them in the sense of They didn't have smartphones at a young age. They didn't have all this stuff that's being fed. And there's this whole generation and, and it really is, you know, we've had COVID, we've had all these things, but there is a, people are paying more attention to mental health, but to your point at the beginning, but are we really diving in? Do you have any thoughts on that, on how we can help our younger generation coming in, um, addressing all of those issues? Yeah. So sort of two answers there. Uh, the first is that, you know, I, I, I was really actually fascinated by this question of um, is social media, you know, we kind of been up in arms about is social media ruining the brains of young kids, all that kind of stuff. So I went back, I found this amazing article not long ago, it really set me off on this. And it, they were highlighting how when you went back to the invention of the telephone, we had very similar takes. And, and they use that as an example to show that like throughout history, there's always been this worry and the, the sad but but accurate answer is we don't really know for a long time afterwards. And so I'm always hesitant to give my take on things like social media because <laughs> I don't want to be um, featured in articles like that in 20 years where look at this, what this guy said about social, you know. I think yeah. there are goods and there's good part of it where, you know, people find my favorite story is, is the guy who you know people were talking about how negative social media was. He said, look, I was a gay teen growing up in Mississippi. There was nobody around me that I could talk to. And I found my community online. You know, so so those moments, it's easy to say, of course, there's positives of social media. Now, on, on the flip side, I would say that the one thing we really need to be doing that we're not doing enough is is listening to this generation. You know, I'm not really on TikTok. I have a TikTok, but I, I don't really I don't really like TikTok. That's an embarrassing thing to admit as a millennial. <laughs> I'm so sorry, fellow millennials. Um, but I know for I, my friends who are are super enthusiastic about the next generation because they're like they're sharing these emotions in a way that we did not do growing up. They're willing to talk about things in a way that the level of acceptance of other people is through the roof. And those are the things that make me uh, that give me hope, you know, is is that if if this is what this generation is coming up, uh, you know, is it going to be perfect? Of course not. But we're every generation, we're getting a little bit more accepting of other people and, and of sharing ourselves with other people. And uh, that gives me some hope for the future. I think that's a great message. Okay, Jay, talk to us as we wrap this up about Choose Your Struggle. Tell us about that. So, your company. yeah. So it, it came from uh, sharing my story for the first time in 2015. 
which the very short version here is that I am a survivor of multiple suicide attempts and an overdose. I am over 12 years in recovery now, uh, but I'm not sober, which is a roughly a, a quarter of the recovery community is, is people like myself who are in recovery from a certain struggle, but are not completely stone cold sober. And um, I told my story on stage for the first time in 2015, and it really just set me off on this path that now I do this uh, for a living. I, I speak. I have a book coming out. Uh, I have multiple podcasts that that all of my company that the, the goal is to end stigma and promote honest and fact based education around mental health, substance misuse and recovery and drug use and policy. Because unfortunately, as we've really spent a lot of time talking about mental health here and and you know, it's the same with drug use and, and addiction. A lot of what we've been taught for a long time is both unintentionally and, and intentionally wrong. Uh, and, and these stories go back over 100 years. Um, I gave a TED talk on this uh, almost a year ago now uh, that really tried to show how the very first anti-drug laws in this country that set the foundation for that created this crisis that we're in today. I mean, it's just grown from there. And most of it, in fact, over 90% of these laws are not based in science, they're not based in fact. A lot of them are based in outdated beliefs about even even about the human brain, things that we would laugh at now. This is where a lot of our policies come from when it comes to mental health and addiction. So uh, I, I think sort of going to what, something we were saying earlier, the first step with all of this is being willing to say, you know, I may not know best here. I may, like most people, have been taught things that were incorrect, and I need to be open-minded and willing to learn. Uh, as someone who does this for a living, I know I learn something new literally every day. And so when people tell me that, no, 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 I know whatever about drug use or mental health, that's really hard to have a conversation after that because I don't want to be the one to tell you flat out that you are wrong, but I will because these things, <laughs> these topics are too important for, for us not to have those conversations. Oh, that's so important. Well, and before we always ask our guests, so before we let you go, we have one more question for you, Jay. If you could go back and tell your 19-year-old self something, what would that be? Oh, that's a tough question. You know, people in the past have asked me, uh, you know, would you tell yourself it, it will it will get better? Sure. Yes. Uh, but I, my 19-year-old self, probably wouldn't have believed that. I would say that, that you know, the most important message I wish I would have told my 19-year-old my self is to reach out to, to somebody. Um, you know, after I attempted suicide, I had so many people in my life who were like downright angry at me. Uh, they were hurt. They were scared. Uh, and they were angry because they were like, how dare you not tell me? Like, these were people who considered themselves my close friends. Uh, and I didn't tell, you know, most of them, of course. And and, and I wish I, I depression can be very isolating and, and it can convince you that you are alone, even when there are people around you who care about you very deeply. And, and, and I didn't know better at that time to not listen to that little voice in my head. So uh, it would probably be that like reach out. There are people who care. Oh, I appreciate that so much. Well, Jay, thank you so much for being here with us today. This is so, so important. Um, I want everyone to know you can find Jay at jayshiftman.com. He's got a powerful website with a ton of information. Um, anything else you want to say, Christy? 
Tell us the name of your book, Jay. Uh, I, it's yes. still in drafts. Uh, I don't have a book. Okay. But I will say, if, if I got a second to plug one more thing, uh, I do have a new show coming out in a couple of weeks called Choose Your Struggle Presents Made It Season 1 Stay Savage. It's a documentary podcast on a person like me who found her way back from trauma to create something beautiful, in this case, a nonprofit organization here in Philly called Stay Savage. It's a really difficult story to hear, but a really important one. Oh, I love it. Thank you for sharing that, Jay. Till next time. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you think someone could benefit, please share. If there's a conversation you think we should be having or a topic that resonated with you, please let us know. You can engage and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Pieces of a Woman Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform. If you listen to us on Apple, leave us a five-star rating and a comment.